Professional welder Shayna Ford used VR training developed by ForgeFX to hone her skills as a welder. The more time that you spend practicing it, that's what separates a good welder from a great welder. VR training can help students like Shayna repeatedly practice specific skills. Virtual reality definitely helps because the more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Explore more stories like Shayna's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Welcome to Right on Hollywood with Christian Toto, part of the Just the News Podcast Network. Sick of media bias infecting film reviews? Furious that too many stars insult your views? Right on Hollywood has your back. Christian is an award-winning journalist, movie critic, and founder of HollywoodinToto.com, the right take on entertainment. Now here's your host, Christian Toto. Welcome back to Right on Hollywood, part of the Just the News Podcast Network. This week's show is brought to you by YouTube, the world leader in video... Sorry, this message was just censored by that explanation. This week, we're talking with Chris Gore, the founder of Film Threat Magazine and one of the more interesting voices on the movie scene. If you want a truly balanced film review site that covers the independent movie scene, Film Threat is for you. We'll also talk to author Mark Judge about why The Last Duel is a Me Too flop. Plus, I'll recommend a cool horror film that I guarantee you never saw, but definitely should. I made the mistake over the weekend of watching Saturday Night Live. I usually don't do that, but I watch it just a few minutes. I was kind of curious what the cold open is all about. That's what the cool kids call the first sketch of the night. That's where they say, live from New York, it's Saturday night. At least they did back in the day. I, I guess they still do it, but <laughs> I don't even care anymore. Now, that sketch had not one but two Joe Bidens, each of them cheering each other up about Joe Biden's lousy poll numbers. Now, we all know about that. They're bad. They've gotten worse. They don't seem to be bouncing back anytime soon. So in theory, I guess that's why they made fun of it. That's what Saturday Night Live should do. Poke fun at politicians, especially when they're stumbling and bumbling. Now, the sketch itself wasn't very funny. It's not a real shock if you've been following the show for any length of time these days. But it's also a great example of media bias in action. Now, yes, I did target Joe Biden. Yes, it did kind of zing him a time or two. But the satirical swipes in the, in the sketch are really kind of gentle. And they also managed to kiss up to White House spokeswoman Jen Psaki. I mean, how they do that, I just have no idea. It's really silly. But what jumped out at me about the sketch was that the show had an older version of Joe Biden, circa 2013. And this one was played by Jason Sudeikis. Now, he used to be on the show, and he used to play Biden as well now and again. So it kind of was a smart little inside joke that he was coming back to the show, playing the Biden of his generation. But one of the interesting things about the sketch was that particular Biden joked that the current model, you know, the one who's the president of the United States right now, is no longer lucid. Yeah, they use the L word, lucid. Now, one word in a comedy sketch doesn't really mean anything. Not going to change the world, not going to change Joe Biden, not going to change the state of the nation. But this is a show that also mocked him later on in the evening. There was a weekend update segment, and they were saying that Joe Biden, the real Joe Biden, was using the F word a lot. Well, the F word that they were referring to was forget. Huh. They get two jokes riffing on Biden's mental state. Now, that could be something. You know, the mainstream media often follows wherever the New York Times goes. If the New York Times breaks a big story, all of a sudden it's cool to follow that story, maybe get some new angles on it. It's kind of like the official permission slip from the media itself. Oh, the New York Times covered it. It's the old gray lady. We can do it too. And I kind of wonder if Saturday Night Live is going to have a similar effect on late night comedians. Are they watching this show? Did they see what happened about how they were referring to Biden's mental state as maybe less than pristine? Now, most late night shows have been avoiding mocking Joe Biden or maybe just tweaking him gently. Maybe a few old age jokes. It's kind of those are the pretty innocuous and easy to write. Doesn't take much to kind of cook them up. But what about his fading mental ability? They really haven't touched on that up until now. 
Could all that change because of one SNL skit? Now, this could be a one-off. It could be the show could go back to hitting GOP targets again and again. This is a far-left comedy show at this point in its run, and it's a pretty standard issue that that's what they're going to do. We'll have to see. But if President Biden delivers a few more appearances like that CNN town hall a few days ago, comedians may have no choice but to make that part of their routines. Don't touch that dial. You're listening to Right on Hollywood. What's the dial? This week's Toto Take is Haunt. I gotta squeeze in one more horror movie recommendation before November hits, right? You know, to me, sometimes the best horror movies, they don't reinvent the wheel. There's no gimmicks, just a young, attractive cast about to get doused in a lot of fake blood. Maybe some entrails, too. It is horror. And to me, that describes Haunt. It came out in 2019. It was co-written by the uh, team behind A Quiet Place. And I thought just that angle alone would get it a lot of attention. Didn't help. It came and it went. Didn't make a lot of money at the box office. And not too many people have been speaking about it since then. And that's kind of a shame. The story follows a young, attractive cast. Big surprise. They're looking for a killer haunted house on Halloween. And then as they're traveling around, they stumble across a sign for a truly extreme haunted house. Well, they can't resist that. So they line up and they enter the house. And, well, you know exactly what's going to happen next. You know, this is the kind of film that understands all the different horror tropes that are out there, but gives them kind of a fresh coat of paint. They felt alive again, in a sense. It's certainly creepy and it's scary at times, a little bit of gore, not obsessively so, but there's some bloodshed for sure, if that's not your thing. But overall, it's just an enjoyable film. I kind of like some of the characters. They weren't as cookie cutter as you expect. Some of them, you were actually hoping that they would survive until the final frame. And it's just a solid horror movie. Again, nothing exciting, nothing different. Uh, It's not like Saw, which really did offer something new and novel in between all the blood-curdling moments. That was a real innovation. This one isn't. It's just solid. It's good. And the best part is, if you're not a Shudder subscriber, that is the horror platform It's like Netflix, but like for genre fans. That one has a free seven-day trial membership right now. And Haunt is on Shudder, along with many, many other horror movies. You can check out this Halloween. I've gotten to know our next guest, Mark Judge, the new fashion way. We connected on social media, and we chat there from time to time. I think we're roughly about the same age, have similar background. And to me, Mark really connects the cultural dots where they need to be connected these days. He's a really good writer, really observant. He kind of shares opinions you don't see elsewhere. And that's what I love in in an op-ed writer. His most recent column, and most of his work can be found on a site called The Stream, involves the new movie The Last Duel. This is Ben Affleck, Matt Damon, directed by Ridley Scott, an absolute box office flop. It was cost at least at least 100 million and it made less than five in its opening weekend. So that's a disaster. But what he digs into is not the box office scene, but how the film deals with me Too issues, both in the modern era and back when the film is set. I believe it might be the 1300s, a long, long time ago. And also how it connects to film noir presentations about sex and betrayal and femme fatales. Now, you know, for all the talk about how women were treated poorly in Hollywood, mostly true. Back in the day, those film noir movies really kind of showed women as powerful and seductive and with lots and lots of agency. And Mark and I talk about that how that kind of compares to what's happening right now. And sometimes when you get into the woke storytelling, you make too many Marisus and not enough good movies. So see what you think about our conversation on this topic. And I'm planning to have Mark Judge on again very soon. Mark, thanks for joining the show. Uh, I want you to talk a little bit about the new movie, The Last Duel. Ben Affleck, Matt Damon, huge box office flop. The, the, the box, the, the, I guess the budget was rather immense and the, uh, the receipts are nothing of the kind. So it's, it's, it's a, a fiscal situation. But let's dig, dig deeper into the story itself and some of the themes that are under underway uh, in this particular film. Yeah, well, it's, it's a good movie. It's unfortunate that the box office wasn't better, but um, it's based on a true event in the 14th century in, in Paris where a knight was accused of raping one of his uh, friends, his friend's wife, um, although their friendship was sort of on again, off again. They were friends and then enemies. And, and um, it was around the time of the Crusades. And it's uh, Ben Fleck, Matt Damon, and Adam Driver star in the movie. And um, so it's kind of like a medieval Me Too movie. And it's told from three different perspectives, from Matt Damon's 
perspective, from um, Adam Driver's perspective, and um, the perspective of the victim, the the woman, um, Marguerite. So um, it's kind of a, a Me Too, you know, medieval Me Too, and in in the end, they announce on screen that the woman's version of events is the truth, is actually <laughs> what happened. So it definitely ties in with the zeitgeist right now. Yeah, it's believe all women when we want to believe all women, but that's maybe a story for another day. You know, I think this kind of topic is obviously rich and interesting, and it's based on a true story. But what I fear from modern-day storytellers is that they they weave too many – I guess, progressive sentiments into the story rather than kind of letting it speak for itself or rather letting maybe the the nuance of the tale be the driving force. Did you feel this was heavy-handed or did Ridley Scott, the director, kind of make sure that that wasn't the case? Um, maybe a little bit of both. I think that um, Matt Damon, who's obviously very liberal, as is Ben Affleck, wanted to virtue signal a little bit. I mean, this, was, um, this film was greenlit in 2019, and um, it was right around that time that, you know, there was a lot going on with Me Too. So it does get a little heavy handed at the end. And as you said, it's, you know, believe all women, you know, no matter what. And Matt Damon is her white knight, literally her white knight. And at the end, he challenges this guy to a duel and um, he's bruised and bloody and, you know, pretty exhausted at the end. So he gets to really sort of put it in our faces in a big way that, you um, she was right. This other guy was wrong. And I fought for her. And yet in the 14th century, women were considered property. So that's not good either. So yeah, he got to, he got to put it out there in a, in a pretty strong way, but it's, it was a little too simplistic for my liking. I mean, the Marguerite, the character, the female character in the movie is when Matt Damon, her husband goes away on business, she begins to take over the farm and does everything well and makes no mistakes. And was telling people what to do, which is, you know, pretty realistic because women at that time probably ran a lot of households, but it's almost to a hyperbolic extent. It's almost to a Mary Sue extent where you have almost like a Star Wars type situation where she's not capable of making mistakes. So it is a little ham handed in that sense. Gotcha. You know, I think it's interesting. The um, I've been watching Modern Family, just binging it with my family, and so many jokes today couldn't be told. But I thought it was interesting. Cam and Mitchell, the characters, the gay couple in the show, are are deeply flawed, and it makes them more likable. It makes them more believable. It makes it funnier, certainly. And I'm thinking if they told that today, when you have a you know a gay couple that that adopts a child and they end up getting married. I think that a storyteller today would sort of maybe iron out some of those flaws. And it's a shame that in this movie that they're kind of making her too perfect because to see her stumble, to see her fall in between being capable and smart and resourceful, I think it'd be a more compelling presentation. Yeah. And, um, you know, to your point, when you come across movies from like the 1970s and 1980s, I just I did a piece about Play Misty for me uh, a year or so ago. And the gay characters are so ridiculously cardboard cut out and stereotypical. It's really just it's it's cartoonish. And you do not want that, of course. But you also don't want the sainthood. I mean, you know, they're people are human beings and we all have pluses and we also all have a shadow, what Carl Jung called a shadow. And it's much more effective in films if people are revealed to have shadows. I mean, um, you know, Ripley in the original Alien is considered a great protagonist and action hero and feminist icon. She was tough and kind of standoffish and kind of cold to others, like not a normal, warm, you know, empathetic, easy to sympathize with protagonist. And that kind of made people like her more, I think, because it was more realistic. Yeah, and I think, uh, I don't think the original character the hero of that story, I think that hero was meant to be a male, I believe. But also, when you watch the movie for the very first time, and gosh, I'd love to do that again, because it's one of my favorite movies of all time, you don't expect her to be the one who survives. 
it seems like maybe the Tom Skerritt character perhaps would be the leader, the guy who kind of finally faces off with the alien, but it's her. And that, that in itself was unexpected and wonderful and one of the many, many reasons why it's so good. Uh, you wrote a column recently for the stream about this particular film, The Last Duel, and how you had recently seen some other film noir uh, classics. It's sort of the same week and, and how that had an impact on you. I think it's a wonderful way to kind of compare the old and the new and look at pop culture from an interesting lens. What, what was your takeaway from kind of seeing these different films at the same time, roughly? Well, yeah, it was the same week that I saw The Last Duel, the American Film Institute, their theater in Silver Spring, Maryland, is having a series on film noir. So I went to go see, you know, The Killers, which is based on a Hemingway story. And uh, He Walked by Night, which is my favorite film noir, and Gun Crazy. And it was instructive because in film noir, you know, obviously the femme fatale can often be the undoing of a man and they're smart, conniving, you know, Gun Crazy is one uh, (laughs) movie titles put it um and clever and sometimes much smarter than the people around them or if not smarter just evil and conniving to undo you know their their male victim and to me that almost seemed more realistic i mean i once i wrote a piece uh, last year about the movie the bad news bears and how amanda Wurlitzer, the pitcher in that movie really smokes her male challengers in that movie And growing up in the 1970s and 80s, that's what a lot of girls were like, I think. They were tough and smart and more multidimensional. So this film noir series really, again, there are a lot of movies from the 40s and 50s, so it can get into broadsides. But like I said, Carl Jung talked about human beings having a shadow, and film noir is literally shadows, as we know. And that just seemed to me to be almost more realistic, even though these movies are 50 years old. I mean, you see... Gilda, and you know people like that, whereas you might not know as too many Mary Sues. You might not know like a Ray from Star Wars. You might not know someone like that, but you will know someone like from Double Indemnity or The Killers, just because we're all human beings and we have that in us, I think. It's interesting that you mentioned Play Misty for me and the, the stereotypical characters. In many ways, we've evolved as a culture and as artists where we don't kind of tell those one-dimensional characters as much as we used to and yet we also are falling back into other newer tropes which are not as impressive not as uh, compelling as uh, some of the classic stories and by the way the bad news bears is one of my favorite movies it's another you can't make this movie today experience but what a shame it is that we can look at our back catalog and say that all these great films you know couldn't be done as they were originally intended today it's it's a it's a stain on modern culture uh, mark before we let you go i know you're working on a new book it's coming out next year and uh, it sounds amazing and interesting. And uh, kind of tell us more about it, what could we can expect, and uh, and the challenge of writing it, because it's a, it's a deeply personal book. Yes. Well, some of your listeners might recall that I was involved in a political um, nuclear bomb in 2018. Um, it involved the Supreme Court. I'll just leave it at that. People can do the math. And for the past 18 months or so, I've been writing a weekly series for the stream about it. And that series is going to be compiled into a book that's going to come out next year with Post Hill Press. Now, we don't have a title for it yet, but I can probably give a hint and say it will probably be a noirish type title because it was a film noir experience. It was not a The Last Duel experience. It was a gun crazy, double indemnity, Maltese Falcon experience. So I'll leave it there. Gotcha. Well, we'll look forward to that. Thank you for joining the show, Mark. I'd like to have you back on again for sure. Mark Judge is one of the best commentators about pop culture, kind of connecting the dots that need to be connected, and his work is essential reading all the time. So uh, check him out as always, and we'll look forward to that book, and we will speak to you soon. Thanks a lot, Christian. Thank you. Don't touch that dial. You're listening to my daddy's podcast. I guess it goes without saying, but not all film critics are created equal. Some of them, like Chris Gore, know and love movies so much, kind of gets your attention. Gore's a veteran film journalist, and he's the founder of Film Threat. It's an old-school magazine, really does a great job covering independent films and lots of different op-eds about the film-going experience. And now, of course, they've transitioned that to a website, filmthreat.com. He's really smart. He's also self-effacing. He knows a lot about the filmmaking process. He's been intimately involved with making films as well. But one of the things I really love about Chris is how he just breaks things down in a no-nonsense way. He recently talked about the Star Wars trilogy, the newest one, and why it was just an absolute disaster. 
it's on a, a YouTube channel called Film Courage. And before or after this podcast, you should be looking at that and watching it all. It's excellent. But I think the thing that really jumps out about Chris now, these days, is that he stands up against the woke mob. He supports free expression. How uncommon is that in the film journalism community? And what a sad statement it is. He also craves true diversity. Not the kind that keeps Christians and conservatives out of the picture entirely. True diversity. And you see that at Film Threat. Now, I have to say, I could have talked to Chris forever, and I had to kind of put the brakes on after a while. I didn't want to take up too much of his time. But as is, I hope you enjoyed the conversation, at least as much as I did. Chris, thanks for joining the show. You know, you've been on top of the Hollywood scene for quite a while, now not to age you or I, but uh, there's all this talk about the movie theater comeback story. It's back. It's not back. Adults aren't coming back in the numbers they once did. What's your take on it, and what is the media missing about this topic? Because it's fascinating. It seems like a rolling situation, but uh, it's surprised me a few times, but I also think it's exactly what I expected. But what's your take on things? Well, my take on things is that the habit of going to the movies on a weekly basis is is broken. It's it's broken. It's certainly, um, you know, I think it's it's certainly we've seen whether it's like sports stadiums or concerts, they're back, right? But movie theaters is a different story. I still think there's there are people who are, have concerns about being in an enclosed space with strangers watching a film. I'm not one of those people, you know, I I never stopped going to the movies. Even when the first lockdown happened, I went to the drive-in and people forget, you know, drive-ins were huge at their height in the sixties. There were 6,000 drive-in movie theater screens across the United States. Now they number about 300. Mm -hmm. So additionally, they were movie palaces, right? Movie palaces were big in the twenties and thirties and Whatnot, And there's still some holdouts, but movie palaces have died. I think because of streaming, right? This is the competition for the The biggest competition for the movie theater is streaming. And you've seen movies underperform because of streaming and also because the window from theater to streaming is short. Shang-Chi, for example, um, the, the Disney Marvel film actually performed fairly well. And because it wasn't also simultaneously available on video on demand, but the window from that to Disney plus is 45 days. I think that will, you know, in the long term, when they look back, will hurt it. But I feel what's happened is the habit has been broken and it's going to take a lot to get people back to the movie theater. Additionally, movies are expensive. It's not, it's not a simple, it's not a like, ah, let's just go to a movie. Like these days it is a, especially if you're a family or you have to get a babysitter and when you include popcorn and whatnot, it's a hundred bucks to go to a movie, couple cocktails, popcorn snacks. It's it's expensive. And for $15, I can have HBO Max and <laughs> I can see Dune on HBO Max the same day it's in movie theaters. People are people are really looking at those um entertainment's kind of the first thing they cut out, right? But I think movies in particular, the movie theater experience is broken. Yeah. You know, it's funny, even before the pandemic, the thing that I heard the most from people just talking casually about movies is, oh, you know, I used to go to the movies X or Y once a week, once a month, once ever, whatever, you know, insert certain time parameters. And it was like a dot, 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 meaning they don't do it anymore. And I, and again, this is pre-pandemic, and I think it's gotten worse now. Do you think that the, the fiscal situation is part of the reason? Why, why do you think that bond broke? Because you know, up until recently, people were seeing movies, but I just feel like anecdotally, at least what I hear, that's what I kind of connected with audiences. Have you heard sort of a similar sentiment? Yeah, I also think that people, well, there's a couple comments on that. One, while it's this is not widely reported, fewer people have been going to the movies. It's it's a choice, people. And it used to be that like you would just, at least for myself, uh, going the movie going experience is like going to church. You know, I'm going to go once a week, even to see something I don't care about. <laughs> right. Um, but my also my movie taste is very eclectic and odd. And I tend to, you know, favor small indie movies. I, I love your spectacle when it's done well, but that's um that's so rare these days. But so you've got like one, there's the cost Two, fewer people are going to the movies. I prefer the way that they gauge and keep data in France. Actually, they don't count box office. They count number of people who have seen a movie and they additionally will even include 
critics who go to screenings for free, but they have seen the movie in a theater. So they include that data. So while, you know, box office is touted as this number, like, look at the huge box office, fewer people are going to the movies. That is just a fact. And I feel that also the content, Hollywood is vastly out of touch with most Americans. I just believe that. I think the last great era of American cinema was like the 70s and 80s. And since then, it's been this shift towards, well, we've got to make movies that appeal to a global audience, which you're appealing to everyone and no one at the same time. Additionally, you know, and I'm sure you've spoken about this and I've been, you know, I've discussed this. I think that there's a bit of lecturing going on that that doesn't really connect with audiences, right? I mean, movies have always had messages, right, underneath the surface, but generally left it to the viewer to decide how they felt about a particular issue. Now the movies, they're it's so lazy, they're just actually straight up lecturing you about you're a bad person if you don't think a certain way. And I don't agree with that. I think that people should be free to come to their own conclusions about particular issues. I think that's turned off a percentage of the audience. And additionally, if you look at Gen Z, movies is not even in the top three of activities <laughs> that they enjoy doing. They prefer TikTok and video gaming. I have right? to, I mean, I, I, this is embarrassing, is, Chris, but I, yeah. one day I really wanted a family movie night. I've got two young sons. Mm-hmm. This is horrible to say. I, I'm a bad parent for saying it. I bribed my boys to watch a movie with us because they're so disinterested in actually sitting down for 90 minutes to two hours to watch a movie. They love YouTube and all the things you just talked about. Yeah, it's it's yeah, no, it's it's habits. Habits have changed and the audience has changed. And Hollywood is, you know, notoriously slow to respond. And when you look at like how long it takes to from I mean, <clears throat> what is it? I The statistic I read is like, you know, from the conceptualizing of a film in a screenwriter's head to getting to screens, you know, a movie theater screen and or video on demand is seven years, right? So it's seven years from thought to actually expressing or or seeing this, seeing this roll out to the world. Additionally, you know, there's so much, and I hate to use this word, it's a dirty word to me is the word content, Mm -hmm. right? So much, especially on your streaming services, is just good. It's just okay. It's not life-changing or it's not resonating. It's just like, all right, that was that was decent, whatever that was. And I think that just because there's such a vast amount of content, it sort of dulled the experience where it's like things are chewed up and spit out sort of pop culture-wise, whereas when I was a kid, it's going to sound like old man yells at the movies. Um, <laughs> feel free to meme me with that. <laughs> You know, you would see a movie and it would you'd be talking about it for months after years. Right. And there's still movies I saw as a kid that I still think about, you know, everything from 2001, A Space Odyssey to Logan's Run to, you know, the first time I saw The Empire Strikes Back in a theater. Those were life altering experiences. And, you know, because we're, you know, live at a time with so much distraction, so much content, more news than we could possibly absorb constantly changing, it's rare we have an opportunity to pause and actually think about what we've just seen and how it resonates. And the conversation is done, you know, by the time a movie opens on a Thursday night, it's already been sort of chewed up and spit out on social media in terms of what people's takes and opinions are. And by Monday, nobody cares. Yeah. So I often, when I see a movie, as I drive home, I've forgotten about the movie. It, It has that little impression on me. You know, one of the things that you've been able to do and do successfully, which is shocking to me, is that you run a film site, you've got a lot of different contributors, you've got smart commentary, and you're surviving. Like, again, it it sounds like a very basic thing to say, but, you know, newspapers are crumbling, websites struggle to kind of keep their their finances afoot. I I don't want to give, I don't want you to give away the secret sauce, but what are maybe some examples of how you've been successful, how you've been able to kind of buck the trend as a publisher, I mean, this, you know, filmthread.com exists, you know, at a time where many sites come and go. What have you done differently? Or what, again, I don't want you to give any state secrets away, but just give us an uh, insight uh, into I, this. I don't care. I'll give you, <laughs> I'll give away some state secrets. All right. Um, one, you're never going to succeed if you just decide to quit. You do have to pivot in terms of business model. Mm-hmm. And Film Threat's business model was always like any um, media outlet advertiser driven, but we know that's dead. It's one stream of revenue, but it's certainly not enough. Um, so we get we 
basically are funded by our our audience. Our audience actually, it's it's creator, it's 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 like like any independent YouTube creator, our audience is the one that keeps us afloat. So we don't have big corporate sponsors because I can't think of many that would want to be affiliated with something called Film Threat. And that's been consistent throughout the years. I've rarely had corporate support. So we count on our audience to support us. So the way it works is real simple. We've got about 30 writers from all over the world who contribute to us. And and I'd, I'd like to point out before I get into that, Alan Ng is our editor in chief of the website. He has an incredible output of reviews. And we, of these 30 writers we require, and they're they're all like volunteers and they get paid to write some reviews and not for others. But what we ask them to do is please write four reviews a month. So if you've got 30 writers writing four reviews a month, that's 120 reviews on the site, mm-hmm. plus what Alan does. That's a, that's what we post at least three to five reviews on a daily basis on filmthreat.com, movies you've never heard of, but should know about and some garbage too. But um <laughs> Because that's just the way it is, whatever. But what I will say is this, is that, and I don't know why or when this change happened. It's in the last few years. Film Threat has and always has been a politically agnostic media outlet, meaning my politics have always been middle of the road, common sense, probably more left-leaning. I vote for the party that is the least crazy, <laughs> and the least nuts. And it's hard to choose these days. Uh, but I will say politically agnostic in the sense that we're not taking a stand, right? We're, we're, we assign a review based on someone predisposed to like that movie in the sense that they, they like that type of film. Like it, whether it's a trauma movie that's exploitation, it has nudity and blood and guts and gore. That's great. Right. We have someone for that. Or whether it's a, a feminist documentary, we have a writer for that. The one thing I do know is the writers at film thread, I, I like to say are just truly diverse in the sense that they carry different ideas. So we have every everything from a New York feminist to a Christian conservative writing for film threat. And then just somebody who just likes exploitation movies, right? It's just like, so you've got many sides represented. What's disconcerting to me is how many people in the critical film critic community seem to have only one politics in mind and one that follows the right path. And I, I don't, I don't believe that. I think that, you know, we get all sorts of documentaries in um, and we'll review, you know, everything from like Coded Bias, which is currently on Netflix, or The Boys in Red Hats about the Covington kids who were mischaracterized by the media and sued CNN successfully. So we run the gamut, right, of all sides of the spectrum because, you know, they're independent filmmakers of all types. So it's really important to me. I will say this, everyone that is affiliated with film threat has an incredible sense of humor about mm-hmm. themselves, which is how we all get along. And I'll say that the New York feminist writer is friends with the Christian conservative writer. They're friends in real life. So my point is that to be truly diverse, you have to be inclusive of other views, whether you agree with them or not. Yeah, that's interesting. And I bet you you've had a you kind of made a self-selective process where maybe the people who are more intolerant of other views probably wouldn't even want to come to film threat. That's true. There's a very good book that I read. I gravitate from, I love biographies, you know, love those, um, fiction. And then I, I like to read wonky sort of like work efficiency books. And one that I recommend is called The No Asshole Rule. <laughs> that is the name of the book, The No Asshole Rule. And I just, I feel like I have a pretty good sense of someone that would fit in with Film Threat. Look, you're not going to make a lot of money <laughs> working for Film Threat. But you're going to have a lot of freedom to be able to say what you want. And also, there are a lot of perks to this. I mean, this is, you know, for the most part, we get to see a lot of films, you know, for free. I mean, that just comes with the territory. And I love that part of it. But it, keeping that that true diversity is important to me. I think when people use the term diversity, they, it doesn't mean what that term really means or what it should mean, right? It's a term that's used to exclude certain people or certain people with certain views. Yeah. And I don't want that. I want different views represented. It's the the only way to really sort of, to me, the best film discussion is when you're talking to someone you disagree with and you, each of you are capable of listening. And I think that when you see the divisiveness 
you know, currently in our country and even in our entertainment, it's uh, we've lost the ability to listen. You know, I think in the past you would lean on a left of center person, if not a liberal, to defend free speech and, and, and creativity. And I feel like so much of the creative community today is either deathly silent on the issue or actually pushing against it. What happened? You're an observer. You, you're you're a person who's centrist, if not left of center. And this is your community in a sense. You're the people you've been following for years. Why are they standing down at a point where they need to be standing up? It, it drives me crazy. And I, I don't have well, any specific answers besides fear. But what's your take on the situation right now? Oh, it, no, you, you pinpointed it. It's fear and cowardice. It's fear and cowardice from people in entertainment to not stand up and say, this is a, this is a bad idea. This is not where we should be headed. So, and the problem is that social media is the worst place to discuss nuanced, you know, concepts and, and thoughts. It, it's, it's fine to throw out names and name call and own whatever side <laughs> you're, you're trying to own or destroy or, or destroy. Social media is a great place to do that. I feel that the best place to have these conversations is a place where we're doing it right now on a podcast or on YouTube. And these are places that I think are better for having that type of conversation. And, um, you know, it's like when The Last Jedi came out, first of all, I despised that first Star Wars movie, The Force Awakens. I was just, you know, it was just no new ideas. It was tired. It was not set up well. Han Solo had one of the worst deaths in movie (laughs) history. And by the way, uh, if you want to hear Chris expound on this in great length and beautiful length, it's I believe Film Courage has its own YouTube channel. And that's where I, I saw a video of you doing just a massive rant. And I, I was practically cheering as I heard it. But continue. Uh, well, I, I, I want to steer people to that as well. I was trying to compare the death of Han Solo to the death of Spock. These are iconic characters that have lived with us for decades that as kids, we, you know, thought about them and these characters and made up stories in our heads. And there's so much fiction and comic books and whatnot dedicated to both Spock and Han Solo and Spock's death. Because my simple argument was the death of an iconic character like that is not about the character. It's about the reactions of the characters, the beloved characters that surround that character. And that was not handled well. With Han Solo, there wasn't the simple choice that Kathleen Kennedy could have made, which is to reunite Han, Luke, and Leia <laughs> in the first movie. And when when that did not happen, I thought, well, this is doomed. Last Jedi introduced, for me, from where I sat, introduced some interesting ideas. And I thought, well, okay, this is my expectations are being subverted. Maybe they know what they're doing. And then the last film, you know, just yeah. comp- was the word... <laughs> The worst Star Wars movie ever made was <laughs> The Rise of Skywalker. It was utterly ridiculous. Didn't wrap anything up. To me, it exposed J.J. Abrams as a total fraud. But was concerning to me about The Last Jedi was there were people who loved it and people who hated it. And what I had not seen for the very first time in the film community, people being ostracized, called horrific names just for having an opinion about a movie. I had friends who liked it and friends who disliked it, but I didn't have an issue with my friends who disliked the movie. And so what I did was, and you can look this up on YouTube or on the Film Threat podcast, I did a thing I called the last, last Jedi debate. Mm-hmm. And I got together people on both sides who loved the movie and people who disliked the movie because I wanted to find out like, well, what were the concerns? And when we did that, and we did that panel twice, once at San Diego Comic-Con and once at Dragon Con, and at, to a packed audience. It was shocking to me, like, I do panels and, like, I get an okay audience, maybe 50 people, whatever. I mean, this was packed. Every time I did this panel, people wanted to know. And I finally got to hear from the other side why people dislike the movie, and they're very good points, mm-hmm. right? Luke had a dramatic change in his character, but it was done off screen. So, it, like, how do we... Han Solo didn't change at all. He's just sort of a dirt dirt bag, back to being kind of a dirt bag after becoming a general in the rebel army. So it's weird that like so much happened off screen that the dramatic change in his characters was very jarring. That was a point that was brought up, which I thought was an excellent point. But the thing that was most concerning, and it's gotten worse, is that if people don't fall in line and like a certain thing, they are vilified you know, called ists and phobes. You, you've heard those things, right? Oh, yeah, like, Ghostbusters you, was the ultimate example of this too. Exactly. If you don't fall in line, if you're not thinking the right way, you're going to be called a certain type of name. Mm-hmm. Whereas there are valid opinions. I, I'm always like, I, in fact, 
I tend to, and this is weird. Maybe this is just me. When I have an opinion about a movie, I generally don't read someone else who has my same opinion because that is a waste of my time. Mm -hmm. I already know what my opinion is. What I seek out is someone who I don't agree with because I want to know what their thinking is. Yeah, I've had yeah. my mind changed. And I, and I don't think that most people think that way. I think this is, I mean, you know, if you look at what's happening on college campuses, certainly you're a horrible person if you even seek out counterpoints of view. Whereas I've always sought out counterpoints of view because I find them interesting. Yeah. I, 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 you know, I find it like it challenges my own. It'll either like make me more steadfast in what my own opinion is like, oh yeah, that that's I'm validation. That person, you know, it fine. Or it'll make me change a certain part. And that certainly happened with the last Jedi where I was finally, you know, like almost a year after it came out, listening to other people's opinions about the film and thinking, oh, I, I missed that. I, I think the thing that I was most struck by was Luke Skywalker, a character I'd thought about, you know, since I was a kid, you know, I saw the first Star Wars when I was 11, you know, I, I was seeing Luke Skywalker on the screen for the first time. Uh, Luke Skywalker is probably around my age, right? Like that I am now. And I, I kind of identified with the, like, I'm just going to go off on an island. Society has hmm. gone to hell. Um, I'm going to, I'm going to sit this out, you know, like he became like Yoda, like wars, not make, we're not make one great. Right. Like, like he, he had become that, but we didn't see the circumstances, right. We kind of saw it in a flashback, but it really wasn't enough. Yeah. So, so just me seeing Luke Skywalker on the screen for the first time was just, I was ecstatic, but I think everyone pretty much agrees whether they liked initially the sequels or not, that, that the sequel trilogy was kind of bungled, yeah. right? Like, yeah. So Especially like in different visions in, in the Mandalorian, right? Which is a little bit essence of the of more what's what we wanted out of Star Wars. You know, it takes place in a timeline that's more recent after you know the the original trilogy and whatnot. It all comes back to <laughs> it's so funny. This all comes back to Star Wars, right? Like, like, but also I think that politics has in, has um, seeped into everything, whether it's comic books. You know, we've seen like beloved characters like Superman are now exploring their sexuality, which I think is, uh, you know, I, I don't know. Uh, well, I don't know how old your boys are, but <laughs> are you going to buy them the new Superman comic? Well, it, what's interesting to me is I feel like that change is not done for commercial purposes. It's done for kind of deeply personal purposes. And I think that they're kind of basically saying all the fans who love the canon, you can go away now. We, we have new fans, but the new fan base is going to be so small, it's not going to support the product. I, I was kind of curious, you mentioned the uh, agnostic take that you have and you bring to Film Threat. Does your team get blowback for that? I mean, just being apolitical is in a way a stance that is frowned upon in some circles. Yeah, I mean, we're not I would not say necessarily that we're apolitical. I mean, you know, it depends on the movie that's being reviewed, right? Like if it's a trauma film, whatever. But if there's a movie like um a film called Roadhead, which is an actual movie by the way, it's it's a it's a low budget exploitation horror film that's kind of clever and there are political messages woven into it if it warrants it. Certainly politics is discussed. Sure, sure. But there is no there is no overriding like film threat is a conservative or a liberal film media outlet. It isn't either. It, it embraces, you know, like I say, the true diversity. The thing is, we just don't have that. We have the discussion within on the website, meaning that's where the discussion takes place. Right. You, you read it. If you look at our social media feed, if you go to Twitter and look up Film Threat and you look at our social media feed, all we're doing is celebrating our writers and the filmmakers for their movies, right? These small indie filmmakers. We celebrate them. This is the thing. We don't get into film discussions on social media because I feel it is a complete waste of time. Twitter isn't paying me to do anything. Facebook isn't paying me. I'm giving that I, I'm using those. So I think it's like how I use social media is not to have a discussion because why would I do that? I'm yeah. not making money doing that. And I'm making money badly too. By, so that's, there's always that. Yeah. I'm not making money. So I'm not going to give them my thoughts. I'm going to promote my work. So my use of social media is specifically to promote my work. You want to have a discussion, come to my website. I'll get paid for the clicks, mm -hmm. you know, read the website, post a comment on a review, feel free to disagree with the writer. Our writers are on there. They'll more than likely respond to you, but we're not having that discussion on social media because then that's where people get, you know, they get mobbed. I've had a couple of attempts for people to try to cancel me, but I think that 
I'm well liked enough that mm-hmm. that people are um, willing to tell them to f off, so <laughs> it doesn't happen. And and also, I just try to stay above it, and I don't care. You yeah. know, like I really don't. If you want to, like, feel free to have your own opinion. Fine, and you don't you don't have to like my opinion. My opinion doesn't shouldn't hurt you. I just think you're a weak person. <laughs> if you if you allow my opinions to ruin your day, you're weak and need to rethink your life. <laughs> Put it bluntly. Uh, one last question. Are you optimistic of the future of the Hollywood community? Not so much the box office or things like that, but just the moving past this moment in time where we can't do a specific comedy because it's going to hurt someone's feelings or we need to kind of have a battle royale when a, a stand-up comedian puts out comments that some people may not agree with it are, are we heading to a worse place in the short term or do you think there's hope in the horizon well I, I will say this i think that hollywood you know while they like to tout being so virtuous there's only one color hollywood cares about and that's green and money right they care about money and i think when they look at the bottom line and they actually see that a lot of this stuff is just not resonating right a lot of the political messaging that's being woven into these films and the sort of almost, um, you know, anti-male, anti-family stuff that's that's woven in, it's it doesn't really fly, right? Like it, it flies with a small vocal percentage, but generally the people who are not on social media don't care, who are just cracking open a beer to watch a sporting event or like, hey, let's go see this new entertaining movie. You know, after a while, they just get turned off. I think that I think the diminishing, you know, audience numbers, let's forget, put box office aside, is really due to that. People don't like to be lectured or told how to think. They just don't, you know, so. So that could save the day. Well, I I think that it could. It could if Hollywood listens. But I think that they've basically dug in. And this is the route that they're choosing to go. I think it'll it'll bite bite them in the ass. The recent James Bond movie way underperformed. What's funny is they promoted this as like this woke James Bond, and this is his reaction to Me Too. And James Bond isn't even he's not even 007 in the movie, right? Like, and that turned off audiences. Then you saw the movie, and it was nothing like that. It wasn't in there. The, The the marketing message about how the James Bond film was supposed to be didn't even exist in the James Bond film. Right. It it wasn't there. So they tricked people into thinking it was this, you know, woke James Bond. And it wasn't. It was pretty much a traditional Daniel Craig, James Bond, which is a very somber affair. I happen to actually really like the film. I mean, you know, no time to die. But that turned people off. I think studios are noticing this, that it's not resonating. If you want if you want your stuff to blow up big. You got to put that stuff aside. I mean, and I do think it's an opportunity for indie film to actually have an make make an impression. You know, like there are a lot of really amazing indie films out there from documentaries. I'll throw out a recommendation. Pharma Bros, which is a documentary about Martin Screlly, which I strongly recommend. It's out on video on demand. Another film, an animated feature um, called The Spine of Night, which is like a heavy metal, not for your boys, Christian. <laughs> It's it's hard R rated. Um, but if you used to read heavy metal when you were a kid, heavy metal comics, it is a heavy metal comic brought to life called The Spine of Night. And it's out there right now. So I always it's sort of like, hey, for every at least one Hollywood movie I see, I've got to see at least two or three indie movies. And those are some. Rec- I mean, if you read filmthreat.com on a daily basis or check us out, you know, couple times a week you'll discover movies like this we're writing about them all the time so or just follow us on the on social media at film threat but i do think it's an opportunity for indie film i know places like the daily wire are making a movie with gina carano i'm very excited to see what happens with that i think you're going to see indies go another way to service an audience that's basically been maligned and i i'm shocked i'm even like saying that but it's weird like a certain audience is being vilified and it's completely unnecessary. Well, it's only half the country, so it's not a big swath, so they can they can get away with it. And by the way, I, I've been waiting and hoping and thinking that it's going to be an indie comedy that is outrageous, subversive, unapologetic, rude, and raw. That's going to absolutely crush the box office and show everyone that we can laugh again and that things are all right with the world. But it hasn't happened yet, and I'm still, I'm still waiting for that particular movie to appear. Well, I've got two recommendations okay. for you. One is called Donnie's Bar Mitzvah. It is incredibly 
over the top. It's like a gross out comedy from the eighties. Mm-hmm. So Donnie's bar mitzvah strongly recommend that we okay. did a watch party with the filmmaker. I interviewed him for the film threat podcast. Then there's another movie called film fest. It's just called film fest, which is a send up of going to a film festival. I mean, it makes fun of like, you know, people that go to Sundance and whatnot. It's awesome. Okay. And it's all about the film festival experience. The director of that movie is making another film and it's a much bigger budget comedy set in Washington, DC. That is, he's just like, this is a, a filmmaker that doesn't care. And he's like, no, we're making it. This is a raw, raunchy comedy like they used to make. I think that because what's weird is, is like during the initial lockdown, what what was weird to notice was without any theatrical films you know, coming from studios, they just re-released old classic movies like Groundhog's Day, Back to the Future, Raiders of the Lost Ark. These classic films just, you know, drive-ins showed them and they became really popular. I saw Jaws on on 4th of July weekend, you know, because that's when that when that movie takes place. Like people have a thirst and a hunger. Like, why are these movies from the past? Why are they resonating? I I, I will say to you that movies being made now, I think we're going to look back on this era of of woke films and go, wow, these movies are really bad. <laughs> these movies are not, they're not going to stand the test of time because they don't resonate in our psyche. You know, yeah. like, like whether it's, you know, if you want to talk about like, you know, Joseph Campbell and, you know, his story structure that George Lucas got the hero's journey that he based Star Wars on these new stories, they're not resonating. They're not working. And I will say to you that I think that Marvel's going in a direction where all of their strong characters for the next phase of Marvel are all strong female characters, which are basically just male characters who happen to be cast as women. They, they cast women in traditional male. But I think it'll, there are a lot of female fans of Marvel specifically because of Beefcake. If you look at the Avengers, the first Avengers movie, which came out in 2012, it's like a friend of mine joked that it's like a Chippendales show. <laughs> you know, It's like these beefy, hot guys. And, and I'll say that a lot of, so like I grew up reading those comic books. I'm a fan of those characters. I loved it. But there are a whole group of new fans of Marvel that are women who maybe were kind of interested in the comics who became fans of Marvel movies specifically because they like strong men. And Marvel, I think, is going to discover that the exclusion of strong male leads in their next phase of Marvel, it's not going to serve them or the audience, you know? Yeah. So My friend John Nolte at Breitbart often says, I miss TNA when he talks about today's movies because, you know, we can, why can't we watch a good looking guy or a beautiful woman being beautiful? I, it's one of the things I thought about once upon a time in Hollywood where Quentin Tarantino made Margot Robbie look ravishingly beautiful and Brad Pitt was handsome and he took his shirt off on the roof. I'm thinking, that's okay. We can, we, these are movie stars. They're good looking people. That's, we can rally around that. But, uh, Hey, Chris, thank you so much for joining right on Hollywood. I, I love talking to you. I love hearing you on different podcasts and shows. I think the thing that really strikes me is how much you love this stuff. And that's why I got into this business. And I know there's a lot of detours along the way, but you haven't lost that at all. And of course, visit filmthreat.com, smart, legitimately diverse reviews and more great commentary. And you can follow Chris on social media that Chris score. Chris, thanks so much. And I want to do this again. Thanks, Christian. Thanks for listening to Right on Hollywood. If you like the show, please smash that review button on Apple Podcasts and leave a five-star review. I think that's how all the cool kids on YouTube talk, right? And while I'm in blatant plug mode, please pre-order my new book, Virtue Bombs, How Hollywood Got Woke and Lost Its Soul. I think the title tells the whole story there, but you got to read it fully to kind of grasp what's going on with our culture and there's a little bit of hope at the end of the rainbow, a.k.a. the last chapter. Also, thanks to Chappelle Gate, I don't think the message of the book is going to go away anytime soon. See you all next week. Thanks for listening to the Right on Hollywood podcast, part of the Just the News Network. We'd love to hear from you about the show. You can email Christian at HollywoodandToto.com. And please don't forget to rate and review us at Apple Podcasts. Five-star reviews make our day. But just speak from the heart. Free speech matters more than ever.